0: About 10 minutes into Jeff Greenway's message, Roadmap Through a Hostile Culture at Lions Roar 2022. In November in Dallas, he said this, the heroes and the warriors of the kingdom will walk with a limp because they've counted the cost, wrestled with God, and he's marked them for life. What Jeff laid out in about, just about 25, 30 minutes was something I'd been thinking about for seven or eight years. In fact, I'd articulated it a number of friends i won't give it away you'll hear it when he says it but it's something i had been thinking about uh, working towards and jeff greenway this remarkable thinker and leader put it in a package so well that uh, i want you to hear it i want you to tell somebody about it send it to someone i'm sending it to friends i know that's why we put it on this podcast lions roar takes place the first weekend of november every year for the Christian Men's Network, cmnsummit.com is the website for that. cmn.men is our website. All the tools you need in your local church or group to disciple men, to be a servant a leader and see changes happen. When you reach the heart of a man, you save the, the future of a child. I, I believe that with all of my heart, which is why we're doing everything we do all over the world in over 100 nations. cmn.men. And uh, today on Brave Men, Uh, you'll meet my friend Jeff Greenway. I put this in the uh, description. I said, he's a fly fisherman who's also a pastor. But uh, I I thought that was funny because uh, he is an avid fly fisherman, an outdoorsman, a great man. Uh, I met him a number of years ago when he picked up maximized Manhood and realized that he needed to navigate his men through a process of discipleship at Reynoldsburg, one of the most uh, significant Methodist churches in North America. And now because of the uh, new global Methodist church, one of the most significant churches uh, around the world. And uh, Jeff grabbed Maximize Manhood, started taking his key men through it and through the discipleship process that we have, and then called me and said, would you come speak? And I did. And we became friends quickly. And he spoke at Lion's Roar. This is that message that has rocked my world. I wanted you to hear it. It, it, is, um, it is navigating through the cultural chaos in which we live with a clarity from the Word of God. You know, it's, I heard somebody the other day said, you know, we're all waiting for a word, but we have it. It's the Word of God. It's the Bible. And he uses that, uses uh, cultural trends and everything else, overlays that, but uses the, the fulcrum and the, the context of the word of God to bring us to where we are today and what the future of the church is. What is it? You'll hear it today on Brave Men. It's Brave Men with Paul Lewis Cole.
1: Wisdom and courage for the journey. Wow, it is great to be here. Uh, greetings from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Penn State fan that lives in Columbus, Ohio, so go ahead, say OH again, PA, okay. Um, Great to be here. Before I get started, I just want to say a word about this kit right here. Uh, Ten years ago, I came home from our uh, worldwide denominational gathering, and I knew that the tradition I'm a part of had passed the Rubicon and was not going to come back from apostasy. And I began leading my local church through a process that is uh, actually resulted on September 25th, we voted at 95% that we're leaving the United Methodist Church. And uh, two weeks from this Saturday, our annual conference will vote to let us out. But uh, when I first came back and began to talk to my board, uh, they had a deer in the headlight kind of look. And I began to to be very convinced that I needed to raise up a group of leaders who had come alongside of us. Uh, to help us get ready to do that. And about uh, seven, eight years ago, I came across the Christian, the Christian ministry uh, kit here, and we began to implement that in the life of our church. Seven years ago, we had Paul come and speak to a gathering that represented about 15 churches, 300 men that came to meet in one of our worship spaces uh, for that particular day. And I would tell you that every Saturday morning, the Max Men Bible Study gathers in, our, in one of our rooms at the, at the church building. And we have between 75 and 85 guys every Saturday morning. And I would tell you, they are warriors. Uh, we stand back to back, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, and I looked around that room last Saturday, knowing I was going to be coming here, thinking about how that group began in very small fashion. And they are leaders in their homes... They are leaders in our church, they are leaders in our community, and they have my back. And we would never have been able to do what we were able to do if it hadn't been for the impact of this box in the lives of hundreds of men in our community and our church. So I want to thank CMN for uh, providing resources like that. It's also great for me to be here with Paul. He's been a hero of mine for a while, but before uh, Paul was Paul, his dad was a hero. I'm old enough to remember uh, the Promise Keepers movement and uh, what a significant shaper of that movement he was and all the good that came out of that. I'm just honored to be here. Um, Let's see, Um, I'm here to talk about what it's like to lead uh, in a hostile culture. And uh, I've got a little bit of experience with that. Uh, and uh, and uh, as well as not only generally speaking, but it's really difficult when a church culture becomes hostile to historic Christianity. And uh, I, about six years ago, I was selected to lead a group called the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And, and uh, we put together a team of people from all over the world to begin to build what has now become the Global Methodist Church. It launched in, it launched in May. And early on, we recognized that we were the last, United Methodists are the last of the main lines to fall to the heresy of our day. And the only reason we hadn't fallen to this point was because it was an international church and the international block was so solidly evangelical that they would not allow that to happen. But uh, when those who were responsible for the Methodist movement decided they weren't going to enforce our agreed-upon covenant any longer, it became unenforceable, ungovernable, and the thing began to unravel at the seams, so we formed this body to begin to build something new. Early on in that process, we brought in some leaders from other communions that had been where we are, and uh, we spent a day with them at the Atlanta airport. They flew in and spent time with us. And uh, there were two groups of bishops that came in that day. There were a group of, there was a couple Lutheran and Anglican bishops who came in to meet with us. And in the afternoon, there were some United Methodist bishops that came in to meet with us. I want to talk about the United Methodist bishops first. They walked in the room in $1,000 suits, expensive shoes, polished up, like they were walking into a Fortune 500 company. And they said, We have a plan, you need to trust us. That did not go well for them. But in the morning, the reason it didn't go well for them was in the morning, we had these uh, two Lutheran and two Anglican bishops come in and talk with us about what they'd been through. And and let, let me just tell you, the humility and grace with which they walked was so attractive, I would have followed them anywhere. And it was clear to me that they had been through it. They looked into the eye of everything that they thought was important. They counted the cost. And when the time was right, they laid aside everything they had staked their careers on to take an unpopular, less traveled path. They walked with a limp and I would have followed them anywhere. Wow. What I want to talk with you today, to, about today is learning to embrace the fact that if you're going to lead courageously in a hostile culture, wherever that is, you're going to walk with a limp. In fact, I would go back to what Paul said earlier, the heroes and the warriors of the kingdom will walk with a limp because they've counted the cost, wrestled with God, and he's marked them for life. Now, King David was an interesting character in the Bible. There are three cities of significance in David's story. The first city is Bethlehem, the place where he was born. The, that was the, uh, where he was the last son of Jesse, you know, the, the runt of the litter. that Samuel kept saying, no, not that one, no, not that one, no, not that one. Finally, they got the kid who was knee-deep in sheep dip, and they brought him in. He said, that's the one. And he anointed this pimple-faced kid. Bethlehem was the place of anointing. It was the place of promise but it would take him 25, 30 years to live into the third story, uh, the third city that was important to his life, and that was the city of Jerusalem, the capital. That was the place of fulfillment. Between promise and fulfillment, there was a place called Ziklag. Ziklag was the place where David went on the run from Saul while he was serving as a mercenary for the Philistines. And it was at at Ziklag, this out-of-the-way, broken-down place, that God began to send all kinds of people into David's presence who would become the army that would back him when the time was right after Saul and Jonathan had been killed and after he had captured all of the booty that had been taken by some of the people that had raided Ziklag. And he captured it all and redistributed it to the rest of the Israelite tribes And it was those men who stood up along with the leaders of those tribes and says, you're the king. Ziklag is a very important place. Now in uh, 1 Chronicles, I'm sorry, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it's a story of, uh, it records for us the assemblage of all the people that came to Ziklag and, and were supporting David in Ziklag. And, uh, and I would tell you that, uh, there are all, all the tribes are mentioned, different clans in the tribes. There are 50,000 from this tribe and 150,000 from that tribe. But there's one tribe that's mentioned that, uh, one clan that's mentioned, and it's the smallest of all the references. But it's really important for us to understand today. And it's from the, from Zik, from Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the signs of the times, and they knew what Israel should do: 200 chiefs and all their relatives under the control. Now you go back and read First Chronicles 12 later tonight, you'll see that's the smallest number referenced in the whole assemblage of that, but I would contend that having people who could understand the times, even though small in number, were crucial for the success of everything that would follow for David. Ziklag was a place where he learned to recognize the gifts of everyone. And these men who could understand the signs of the times knew what Israel should do. So I want to ask you a question. Do you know what time it is? I mean, yeah, it's a little bit after two in the afternoon. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you understand the time in which we're living? Do you understand the signs of the times around us? Can you see what time it is? Earlier this month, I was traveling in Romania with some mission partners there, and I was reading through Psalm 90. And I saw in Psalm 90 the contrast between two different kinds of time. There's Kairos' time, which is God's time, it's, uh, it's everything from beginning to end. And Psalm 90, verse 4, tells us that a thousand years in your sight, God, are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. In other words, the evening we have today in Cairo's time is a 1,000 years. Which, by the way, you know what that means? It means that when time as we know it rolls up like a scroll and Jesus comes again and welcomes all of us home and we are forever with the Lord, we will so no sooner be there, whether we die before he comes or when he comes, we will no sooner be there than everyone we've ever known will be there with us those who die in faith. Cairo's time is infinite in capacity. God gives us incredible grace by not judging us according to Cairo's time, but rather, I'm sorry, he puts us in Chronos time, which is the second kind of time, which is also in Psalm 90, verse 12. Chronos time, chronological time, the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, and I've been thinking over the over the while, why is it that our time, our chronos time, seems to crawl along, while God's Kairos time lasts forever? You know why it is. So He gives us the time to turn our hearts toward Him. He gives us the capacity to be awakened to the Spirit. He gives us the opportunity over and over again to respond to the grace that's been given to us. Now, here's what I know. God keeps time on Kairos time. We keep time on Kronos time. But the best way to live your life and my life is when we align our Kronos time with God's Kairos time. I believe we're living in a time where god's kairos time is coming to bear upon the lives who the people who align their lives with him several years ago i read a book uh, by a guy named lauren mead entitled the once and future church and he chronicled in that book four distinct periods of christian history that i want to share with you today because i believe we're living at a very significant point in history we're living at a a crack in history that is an incredible opportunity for men of Issachar who understand the signs of the times. So the first era he talks about is the apostolic era. This is the era that existed from from the crucifixion of Jesus, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, until 315 AD. This is the period of the New Testament. And if you take a look at that diagram, you'll notice there's all kinds of little circles that represents all the different sects that were available or were operative in the Roman Empire. And one of them has a cross in it. That's a reminder to us that in the apostolic era, the era of the New Testament church, Christianity was a minority sect in a pagan culture. There were two groups of people that were dead set against the successful movement of the church. On the one hand were the Romans for whom Christianity was illegal. And if you were caught to be practicing the Christian faith, a Roman governor, because it was not a recognized sect, could have you executed in any way they chose to do so. No appeal, do not pass go, do not collect $200, straight to the cross, you die. On the other side was the Jewish Community that hated the Christian community because it, they saw it as, as being disobedient to all of their tradition and religion. In fact, if a Jewish person crossed the line of faith and put their faith in Jesus, their family would hold a funeral because it was like their child had died. Now, I want you to note in this apostolic era the spiritual gifts are operative the decision to follow Jesus was a before and after moment one day you were one one moment you were one way another way another moment you were a different way you, your life was transformed this is the church we read about in the New Testament I can remember for a good portion of my adult life I've been praying oh god do that again I'd like to see you, I'd like to see you do that again Wouldn't you like to see God do that again? But here's what happened. The Christian faith flourished during those first 300 years. Flourished to the point that by the time we get to 315, it's now a growing movement. And in 315, the second era, is when Constantine's mother, Helena, convinced him that Christians shouldn't be executed for everything. Some historians would tell you that's when Constantine was baptized. I happen to believe that happened a little bit later. It was the influence of his Christian mother, but he legalized Christianity. And over the next 60 years, Christianity took the Roman world by storm. So that by the time we get to 375 AD, the emperor's name is Theodosia, which means God knower. And from that point on, the church and the state acted as one. That's why it's called the Holy Roman Empire. Church and state function together. So the church determined the morals of the state, and the state was influenced by the church. Now, I need to tell you, the next, though, 1,300, 1,400 years did not have some of our finest hours in it. Crusades, not our finest hour. But the the working of the church and the state functioning together had an incredible cultural influence on the formation of the Western world. I live in Ohio now. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. If you go in any county seat in either one of the states I've spent the majority of my life in, you go into the county seat and on the square of the county seat, you'll see a courthouse on one end of the city square. What's on the other end? A church, and if you take a look at the history of that town, the players in that courthouse were the players in that church, and the players in that church were the players in that courthouse. Some of us are old enough to remember blue laws, where the church determined that you weren't allowed to have business on Sunday. All kinds of things. There were all kinds of residual evidence of this. But here's the problem: when you're in the apostolic era, following Jesus is before and after moment. When all of a sudden you're in a Christendom era, conversion is not necessary because you're born into a Christian culture. So how do you mark the journey from cradle to grave in a culture that says you're born Christian? Well, you sacramentalize it. That's why in the catholic tradition there are seven sacraments it marks a person's journey from cradle to grave you know there's baptism and then there's confession and then there's confirmation and then there's the sacrament of communion and then you get a choice you can marry a person in christian marriage or you can marry the church in ordination and then you live your life out until you get oil on your head when you die last rites extreme unction and you die in a state of grace the challenge with that is the priest became the distributors of grace, which was ripe for all kinds of corruption, and there really was no transformation of the person from before Christ to in Christ. They were just born into a Christian culture, which meant that religion became the order of the day. So the Christendom era that some people yearn to get back to is a period of religion, not relationship in which the church sold out the mission of Jesus for the power of the institution. And so what happens during, let me just tell you, I've learned over the years that institutions, you know what they do? They exist to protect themselves. And when an institution feels that it's being threatened, those responsible to be the custodians of that institution will break whatever rule they need to, even their core ethos, to wipe out the threat. Institutional Christianity has hurt apostolic Christianity. So after about 1,400 years of the church and state functioning together with an unholy dance, in the 1700s, another era was birthed. This was the Enlightenment era. This is the time of the Industrial Revolution, the Age of Reason, the increase of the scientific method. And because... The Christian experience from the Christendom era did not result in authentic life change, but rather anointing people, inoculating them against a real life-changing experience of Jesus. Those who were of a scientific mind became incredibly skeptical of anything they couldn't prove in a Petri dish or by a mathematical equation. And all of a sudden, you have... ALL KINDS OF PEOPLE BEGINNING TO CAST THE SHADOW OF THE DOUBT ON WHETHER THE SCRIPTURES ARE TRUE BECAUSE THEY'RE NOT ALWAYS SEEING THE RESULTS OF THAT BEING LIVED OUT AROUND THEM. NOW, I'M NOT SAYING THERE WEREN'T AUTHENTIC CHRISTIANS DURING THE Christendom ERA. I'M JUST SAYING THAT WAS NOT THE WAY PEOPLE CAME TO FAITH. THEY WERE BORN AND SACRAMENTALIZED INTO THE FAITH, BUT THEY DIDN'T CROSS THE LINE OF FAITH AND SURRENDER THEIR HEARTS TO JESUS. Now, I would note that during the 1700s, there were several great revival movements that took place. One of them is the Methodist movement. I'm a part of that. That's the the cradle, uh, that's the the fireplace in which my experience of faith was birthed. But I would tell you, the institution and the scientific or cultural community fought against those movements tooth and nail because they were threatened by something that was experiential and not just logical or religious. It's not lost on me that the United States was birthed during the Enlightenment era. And one of the things we're known for is the separation of church and state. And sometimes the way the church has tried to deal with that is to go back to a Christendom era where we have influence over the political square because we've elected the right people into, this, into space. That's, that's playing a different game than Jesus wants us to play. Now, in the 1970s, or a little before, a little bit after, things began to change again. They began to change because, uh, because the rise of secular humanism the antagonism toward authentic Christian faith, uh, an open rebellion against anything that was holy. And I would contend to you, and so would Lauren Mead, that we're now living in a postmodern, pre-Christian era again. And if you look at that, what does it look like? It doesn't look like the Enlightenment era. It doesn't look like the Christian era. What does it look like? We're once again in the place where we're becoming a minority sect in a prevailingly pagan culture, which you know what that means? God has us right where he wants us. See, he's he's stripping away all of this other stuff. He's stripping away all of the... We learn from history, but he's stripping away a spirit of religion. He's stripping away... Uh, A a skeptical view, and he's, once again, in the last 50 years or so, it's almost like God has pulled back the curtain of scripture and allowed us to rediscover some things. When Luther started the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago, he said there were three primary tenets of the Reformation, sola fide, we're saved by faith alone, sola scriptura, that the scriptures are the sufficient rule of faith and practice. But the last one was the priesthood of all believers. Luther never quite got there. It wasn't until the Azusa Street Revival and some other great movements of God in which the spirit has begun to pour out on all flesh again in a way that people are actually open to it, that God has pulled back the curtain and has allowed the spiritual gifts to be seen and operative again. And what's happening is just like in the apostolic era, conversion is becoming a before and after moment which is evidenced by the presence of the Spirit of God, which is evidenced by life change, which is not about a spirit of religion and controlling of an institution, but rather it's more movemental. It's intended to change the human heart, which then in turn changes a life, which then in turn changes a family, which then in turn changes a culture. It's not about an institution. It's about a movement of God. Do you understand what time it is? We're living in a new apostolic era. Make hay while the sun is high, friends, because the time is right. We're living in a postmodern pre-Christian world, and the future will not be found in institutional church, which is crumbling, by the way, under its own inability to understand transcendent truth. And the future that God holds for us will be found in in the spirit of the New Testament. So, I want to just in these few moments I have left, I just want to share with you a roadmap for how you as a man can lead your family and your church through a hostile culture in the time in which we live. The first one is this <clears throat> think movement, not institution think movementally. This isn't about the name on the front of a building. This is about the character and the heart of the people inside of the building. This is about something bigger than preserving a brand. This is about tapping back into what the Spirit of God is doing in our world today. Think movement, not institutions. Once again, institutions exist to preserve themselves. And that is antithetical what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, because whoever is going to save their life institution will lose it, but whoever's willing to lose their life for my sake in the gospels will save it. So think movementally, not in terms of institutions. The second thing I want to share is cultivate relationship, not religion. Cultivate relationship, not religion. When Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night in John chapter 3, he is the representative of the institution, encountering the Son of God who has come to offer relationship. And the clash that began there would finally end later when Nicodemus would declare faith, but it was because Jesus refused to kowtow to institutional stuff. He was more concerned about the heart of the man than he was about their religious sensibilities that he represented. So think in terms of relationship and not religion. Well, all of us need to have places in which we're known fully and fully known, and the best way that happens from a New Testament sense is in a small group of people called a house church, where there might be a dozen folks that share life together and do life together. By the way, it's the same thing. Jesus did that with Nicodemus. Paul did the same thing in Athens. He tried to confront the institution of religion. It did not go well for him. He learned something between Athens and Corinth. And by the time he got to Corinth, he was on message and invited them into relationship with Jesus. I think it's a sucker's play to try to rescue institutions. I think it's a kingdom play to invest in relationships. The third suggestion I have for us is be salt and light. Don't be salty and dim. God called Jesus. The scriptures call us to be holy. Now holiness is not a, a moral code where you don't drink or swear or smoke or two and never date the girls who do. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about allowing the Spirit of God to shape our character in such a way that our at the grace of God leaks out in every area of our lives. You know, we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because we leak. At least we should. And when we leak, we grow other people. Now, I'm not talking about toxic perfectionism here, which by the way is impossible to attain to begin with, because the world around us does not need a group of people who say they believe in Jesus but don't live any differently than the world around them. We need to be as distinctive as salt and light, not salty or dim. So let your light so shine before people that they'll see your good works, Doug, Doug, and they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven, and they'll be drawn to him. To live a life that's so attractive, so distinctively different, that somebody would come up to you and say, can you give me the reason you live this way? And as Peter says, always be ready to give an accounting for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. The next suggestion I have is holiness, not carnal. In Paul's letters, he talks about three different kinds of man. He talks about the natural man, which is the way we're born, dead in sin, with a heart that's not toward anything related to God. And then he talks about the spiritual man, which is who we become when we place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But then he talks about the carnal man. And I would just tell you one of the evidences of Christendom and the Enlightenment is carnality among Christians. A carnal person is a person who's placed their faith in Jesus, but they've not surrendered to Jesus as Lord so they don't look any different than the people around them because they still live the life they used to live. Walk away from that, live a holy kind of life. Live holiness, not carnality. Holiness, not carnality. The next suggestion I have is, you gotta lock arms with other people. You can't do this alone. I already told you about my band of brothers that meets with me every Saturday morning. I thank god for them but let me tell you the coolest thing that's happened among those guys they are now breaking up in groups of four we call them bands and those four those groups of four are doing life on life high accountability nothing is held back in that conversation in which they're bringing the very best out of one another and they're they're helping each other be formed in the likeness of jesus they are not playing games they are being transformed and they lock their arms like Ecclesiastes 4 says, you know, back to back, shoulder to shoulder, you know, defending one another. Another suggestion I have for you is get good at showing honor. Show honor. I would tell you that the, it doesn't do you any good to do it in your church if you're not going to do it in your house. Yeah. Ephesians 5 tells us that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love reading that passage at weddings because you know, the dude's feeling pretty good about that. Submit, you know, wives submit to your husbands and everything as to the Lord, yada, yada, yada. Dude's saying, yep, I told you, it's in there. You're supposed to do everything I tell you to do, listen to me, and I say, hey, you're feeling pretty good about this, but listen to what comes up next. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do for the church? Oh, he died for the church. Oh, you mean, and I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm talking about dying to agenda. I'm talking about dying to power. I'm talking about dying to the need to be right all the time. I'm talking about dying to, to crushing her spirit and helping her live in such a way that she flourishes to be the person God had in mind when she first thought of creating her. I love the story of the creation in Genesis chapter 2. You know, there's nobody for the guy to spend his life with. So God says, causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he takes one of his ribs and closes up its place with flesh and he fashions that rib into a woman and he, she bring, he brings her to the man and the dude says, wow, man. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I want you to note something about that passage. Woman was not taken from man's foot so she could be trampled over by him. And she was not taken from man's head so she could lord herself over him. She was taken from man's side so that she could walk beside him. And from under his arm so she could be protected by him and from next to his heart so that she'd always been revered and loved by him. That's how you show honor, is remembering what she was created for and celebrating that. And if you can do that with your wife, then it really becomes a lot easier not to exasperate your children, but set them an example of faith and conduct. I'm 62 years old, my kids are 38, 36, and 35. There have been times in the last several years where I've come to realize that there were places I misstepped and misspoke and mishandled things when they were younger. And in their adult lives, I call them up and say, Hey, do you remember when? And most of the time they do. And I say, I just need to tell you I was wrong. I'm so sorry. A lot of us are afraid that we're going to lose something if we do that. You will not lose a thing. I remember the first time my dad ever apologized for me for being wrong. I'd known he was wrong all along. But when he acknowledged that, he grew to be a giant in my eyes. Honor, show honor in your home. And finally, align your God's Kronos time with your Kairos time. You were put on the planet for such a time as this. My prayer is that God will teach us to number our days and give us a heart for what is right. And as he does, that we walk with a limp. Walk with a limp. Let's stand for prayer together. God, we have a keen awareness of the, times, of the signs of the times in which we live. We see it all around us, forgive us for those times when we've thought about a human solution and help us to lean into a spiritual solution. We surrender ourselves to be a New Testament people, to give up our desiring to have power and control, but we give it and rest it to you, understanding that you are good and you'll do exceedingly abundantly more with our lives than we can ever ask or imagine. Help us to be the leaders that you call us to be. Help us to be champions. Help us to be warriors. But as we do so, help us to walk with a limp so no one will ever be confused from who the power comes. We ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Jeff Greenway on the Brave Men podcast. Jeff Greenway is a former president of Asbury Theological Seminary, now the pastor of Reynoldsburg Methodist Church in Columbus, Ohio area, and also one of the founders of the global Methodist movement, the Wesleyan movement, and and a thought leader around the world, a, a man that thousands, and I mean that in that larger number. I don't mean that's not parenthetical or evangelistic, Thousands of leaders around the world look to him for leadership, and you've just been able to spend some time with him, listen to him. cmn.men is our website. All the tools you need for discipling men, growing strong men, to uh, carry out the message that that Dr. Greenway just articulated. We are pre-Christian, guys. We are, this is it. This is, I believe the greatest churches have not yet been built i believe some of the greatest moves of god are about to happen we're seeing it in different parts of the world where i live in the united states we see it in, in small pockets but i believe the book of acts is true when god wrote through the heart of a man in the last days god says i will pour out my spirit on everyone man i'm and that's where i live that's where we live at Christian Men's Network. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being a friend. Thank you to those who are partners with us on a monthly basis, on a regular basis, and uh, make this possible. cmn.men is the website. God bless you. Remember, hope is alive. Hope has a name. Hope's name is Jesus.
1: You've just experienced Brave Men with Paul Lewis Cole. Paul is president of the Christian Men's Network. Connect with Paul at cmn.men or write to him at paul at cmn.men.